Uh, one outlines the whole book. It tells you what the whole book is about. It, it draws in the whole book into those two verses. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you have been taught, abounding with thanksgiving. That's the centerpiece of Colossians. Everything flows into it and flows out of those two verses. And you will hear them so much that even if you don't want to memorize them, I hope, please Lord, that you will memorize them by accident as I say them over and over again to you. Okay? All right. So that's the centerpiece and you can't miss it that that's the concept, the whole desire that Paul has is that we put away the pygmy Jesus so that we stop being pygmy Christians. And once you grasp this, then you realize that Paul's whole point is for us to become grabbed by the gospel, grabbed by the gospel, and to get on with the gospel. To get on with the gospel. When I'm saying getting on with the gospel, I'm not saying leaving behind the gospel. I'm not saying set in your bookshelf the gospel and go on with life. I'm saying it's like get on with the gospel. It needs to be in every part of who you are and how you live and how you husband and how you wife and how you adult and how you parent and how you business and how you vote and how you politic and so forth. Getting on with the gospel. What we find in Colossians is that our Lord Jesus is not a pygmy Jesus. And the more that Paul hammers that home, it's so that we will outgrow being pygmy Christians. And so the letter begins with the preamble, and that's verses 1 and 2. The preamble, that's the forward of the letter. Now notice that the forward, the very beginning two verses that I've already read to you, are meant to introduce the authors of the letter, Paul and Timothy, and to give some credentials. And here are the credentials. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, apostle is a sent out one. In fact, that's what the Greek word means, apostle. That lies behind that word, a sent out one. And what Paul is reminding the Colossians of is his credentials. He is a hand-picked spokesman, hand-picked specifically by Jesus, just like Peter was, just like, just like uh, John was, etc. Hand-picked by Jesus to speak for Jesus, to represent Jesus. Very much like an ambassador is handpicked by the leadership of the nation, the, usually the king or the president, to go represent the king or the president and the country so that whatever the ambassador says is what the president says. Paul is the same way. He's a handpicked spokesman, spokesperson, a spokesman of Christ so that what he says is what Jesus says. But the second part of his credentials is this. By the will of God. Notice it's not by some experience Paul had, though he did have an experience. It's not by the power that he had. It's not by his prowess that he was sharp and he was a politico and he was very religious and he had everybody's uh, attention and, and that he was uh, uh, hyper in his activism where he was hunting down and destroying Christian families and throwing them in jail. It wasn't any of those reasons why he was handpicked. It's by the will of God. He was a handpicked spokesperson, spokesman for Jesus, handpicked by Jesus according to the will of God. That's, those are his credentials. But then the preamble shows that he knows his audience and the recipients of the letters. Notice how he goes on to say, to the saints 
and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He knows to whom he is writing. It was once said of Martin Lloyd-Jones, most of you don't, probably don't know who he is, some of you do, but he was a preacher in England, at Westminster Chapel in England. He was a very popular preacher, and in that day, they didn't have, instant, uh, they didn't have uh, social media like we do, so they only printed everything in a paper, right? And so every preacher in town was vying with the media to get their sermon published in the pr- paper on Monday morning. But not Martin Lloyd-Jones. And so the reporters would come to Martin Lloyd-Jones' church, they would hear him preach, and one of the things that one of the journalists said, who was not a Christian, said, wow, when Martin Lloyd-Jones preaches, he knows to whom he's preaching. He's preaching just to his church, which made his sermons even more impactful, they thought. But it was the fact he knew his audience. He was preaching just for his people. And so Paul's doing the same thing. He knows his audience. These people, these Christians who live in the town of Colossae, in what's modern-day Turkey would be uh, in the south, uh, northeast, southwest, southwest corner of modern-day Turkey. Close to, we had a family come recently that's going to Turkey. Does everyone remember? I'm not going to mention their names. Right? They're going to be part of a mission work there. They're going into that region, close to Colossae. So that's who he's writing to. He knows where they live, and he knows who they are. Notice how he describes them to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. So Paul knows who these people are. They are the saints, they are the holy ones, and they're also the faithful ones. They've been made holy and they've been made faithful in Christ Jesus. He knows who these people are. And then Paul quickly prays for them. He prays that God the Father would pour out on them grace and peace. That he would pour out grace on them to be at peace. He would pour out grace on them to walk in peace. He would pour out grace on them to know peace from the tips of their toes to the tops of their heads. He prays for them in that regard. And the preamble comes to an end. But that's the preamble. Which then leads Paul to describe, starting in verse 3, to describe his gospel-powered prayer, gospel-powered prayer of thanksgiving for them. So that's verse 3 through the very first part of verse 5. Okay, through the very first part of verse 5. Notice how then it's thankful prayer. This gospel, the very thing he does at the beginning is, this, is he's showing how the gospel-powered prayer is thankful prayer. Notice how he begins. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We always thank God when we pray for you. That's pretty exciting. Right? Wow, people thank God for us. Wow, Paul thanks God for us. That would be heartwarming. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for you. Dear friends, gospel-grounded prayer is thankful prayer. Never forget that. I won't let you. Don't worry. Gospel-grounded prayer is thankful prayer. In fact, Paul is very specific about his gratitude. Notice what he says. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Did you hear the the kind of the Christian virtue trivium there? Faith, love, hope. It's the very thing I was reading to you from 1 Thessalonians before the service began at the introduction 
where Paul is grateful and remembers the Thessalonian Christians for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Paul talks about that trivium in 1 Corinthians 13. When he says, now all these other things will pass away, but right now the things that really matter are faith, hope, and love, and out of these, love will continue on. Do you hear the trivium? I'm calling it a trivium because it's three. I know you, you people who are into education, I just messed everything up. But that's okay. It's all right. Be, show me grace. The three parts, faith, love, and hope. Now notice that the apostle heard. He heard of their faith, love, and hope. And he tells you, he heard of that, of those qualities from them through Epaphras who had come from them. That's what he goes on to say when you get down a little bit further. Epaphras had come to Paul while he was in prison. Chapter 4, verse 3 and verse 18. Paul's in prison as he's writing this. Epaphras has come to him to take care of him and to give him encouragement. Why would Epaphras come to him to take care of him? Most of you don't know because you're Americans and you live in the West and you have no idea because you've never seen this happen. But most of the world, when you went to prison, you didn't have food. You were never fed by anyone in prison because you didn't have it. You were there to be punished. You had no water, you had no sewage, you have no clothes. Somebody, if you're going to eat, somebody from outside has got to come and bring you water and food. And I'm going to tell you that a large portion of the world today, it's the same thing. When we were stationed in Turkey, right outside of the base, about 10 kilometers away, outside of Adana, Turkey, there was the prison. And in that prison was an American woman. Unfortunately, what she had done, shame on her, is she had smuggled hashish into a hashish-growing country. I don't understand that. But anyways, she had smuggled it into the country and got caught. And in those regions, that's never good news, right? It's never a happy ending. She's put in the prison, no food, no clothing. And so the embassy had set it up to where we would take her food. The airmen at the base would take her food. And there was always set up who would do it twice a day. You get food in the morning and food in the evening. That's the only way she ate. That's the way it is in most of the world. That's the way it is with Paul here. That's why Epaphras coming, he's really coming from the heart of Colossae to care for Paul. And it's in that moment he's also being encouraged because Epaphras... Has given Paul a heartening report about this church that Paul has never visited. The church at Colossae. He's never visited. Just read chapter 2, verse 1. He's never been there, but he cares about that church. And he finds out that they care about him, and it makes a melody in his heart. He's happy. And so Paul is specifically grateful then for what he's heard from Epaphras for their faith, love, and hope. And so I'm going to break those down. He's, He's grateful. First, for their faith in Christ Jesus. Now that runs throughout Colossians. This whole theme about faith in Christ runs throughout from one end of this letter to the other. But you hear it in the centerpiece of the letter. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Established in the faith, just as you've been taught, etc., Secondly, he is grateful for the love you have for all the saints. Now that virtue will also keep surfacing throughout this letter. For example, just drop your eyes very quickly at verse 8. Epaphras has come and told us how you have uh, the love you have in the Spirit. 
for us, right? The love you have for us. He'll say something similar when you get to chapter 2, verse 2, when he will say, we want your hearts to be encouraged, knit together in love. He'll do it again when you get to chapter 3, verse 14. In chapter 3, verse 14, after he lists off all these qualities that should be evidence of new creation, he then says, above all these, that's interesting language, above all these qualities that are very important, above them all, that's top drawer issue language, above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, my friends, you've heard me say it 116 times, so today is 117. Who's counting, right? But brotherly love, love from Christian to Christian, Christian for Christian, is a top drawer issue in the New Testament from Romans to Revelation. It is a top drawer issue. It's huge in the Scriptures. In the New Testament... Why is it huge? It's huge to Paul. Well, why is it huge to Paul? Because it's huge to our Lord Jesus. Every New Testament letter sometime gets back to Jesus' new command. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Love one another and as you love one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. My friends, when will all people know that we're disciples of Jesus? When we love one another. Now, this is really poignant for Reformed folk like us, like me. Because sometimes, and oftentimes, we make other things top drawer issues. Justification, and make sure that you dot all the I's and justification across all the T's. We make sanctification, ecclesiology, sacramentology, Theology proper, Christology proper, top drawer issues. Now, don't get me wrong, those are all important. I mean, they're up there. But what we do is we almost always, and I'm telling you from experience, I'm telling you from being a minister of the PCA for over 20 years, in my experience, we almost always take brotherly love and stick it down here around the third drawer. Down, right down here. Right? We would rather kill one another. We would rather eat one another then love one another. My friends, you don't know justification if you don't love your brothers as Jesus loved you. Let me say it again. You don't know justification if you don't love fellow believers as Jesus loved you. It's a top drawer issue. I'm not saying to pull these other things down. I'm saying put it back up there where Jesus put it for Christ's sake. And so it's a top drawer issue. And that's why Paul is at it again as he says it here. The third aspect he is grateful for is that underneath faith and underneath love is the foundation of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Now notice it's not hope that you're going to go to heaven. It's that your hope is laid up for you in heaven. Anybody get that language? It's the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. It's not hope that we will one day flitter off into heaven like some airy ghost, like so much smoke and wispy air. But it's a hope that there is more than this life than we see with our eyeballs in this life. It's hope in the resurrection. It's hope 
in the new heavens and new earth, but notice it is laid up for you in heaven. Why is that so important? Because what that's telling you is that it is a hope that is secured. It'll never get taxed and it'll never get audited and there will never be an IRS agent or NSA that will take it from you. It can't be sued from you. It can't be uh, lifted away from you by some thugs. It is secured. Your hope laid up for you in heaven. It's a hope laid up for you in heaven. Untouchable, untaxable, indestructible, imperishable. Why? Because our hope is with Christ. Christ resurrected, raised from the dead, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair. Never again subject to misery and mortality. Who is ascended to the Father's right hand. Who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And who will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. Our hope is in his lap or in his hand. He's got it. Ain't nobody taking it. That's his point. In fact, he'll even say as much when you get to chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. We'll have more to say when we finally get to chapter 3. But those are the three qualities he gives thanks to God for when he prays for these Christians. You can see he's very specific about his gratitude. I would encourage you to think about that, to think about employing that trivium, if you want to use that phrase, as you pray for your husband and for your wife and for one another. Maybe start out with a prayer of thanksgiving. Thank you, dear God, that he has faith in Jesus Christ. That is amazing. Your miracle has come home. Thank you, Lord God, that she loves brothers and sisters. Wow. That's a miracle. Thank you, dear God, for the hope that you have given her, you've given me, you've given us that's laid up for us in Christ. I mean, start there. Gospel-powered prayer is thankful prayer. And those three, faith, love, and hope, are a good place to begin. But notice this gospel prayer is thankful prayer, but it is also thorough prayer. And it's the rest of verse 5 into verse 6. So follow along in the passage as you look at it with me. So the rest of verse 5 into verse 6, Paul's thankful prayer for them leads him to thoroughly mention more of why he is thankful. Now by thorough, what I mean is this. You'll notice how he does this in verse 5 into verse 6. He brings them and he brings us to see what God is doing among us. But then he lifts up our eyes to see that God who is doing these things amongst us is doing similar things worldwide. That the God is doing these things amongst us is doing these things worldwide. He begins by reminding them there in verse 5 of the gift that they have been given. Of this, this hope that is laid up for you and the word, the message about it. Of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. That gospel hope was presented to them by Epaphras, as Paul says here. But I want you to notice it was given to them. It's a gift. It's not a prerogative. It's not an entitlement. In fact, in verse 6 he says, which has come to you. Which implies it didn't have to come to you. It didn't have to come to Colossae. It came. It's a gift. 
But then Paul looks around at what God is doing in Colossae, and he lifts their eyes to look around at the globe. And notice in verse 6 what he says, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. In fact, he'll come back to that at the end of verse 23 down below, when he says that the hope of the gospel that you've heard has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, etc. He wants us to have this worldwide thoroughness in our perspective. Now, obviously, there's some hyperbole in Paul's characterization. It's not that every man, woman, girl, and boy now has this hope and is growing in it. Rather, it's that there are no borders. There are no boundaries restricting this gospel just to one area. There's nothing hindering it from getting out and getting loose and running across the land. That's kind of his point there. And so notice then that wherever it goes, it is bearing fruit and increasing. And so on the one hand, Paul's thankful prayer includes this thoroughness in the sense of this thorough, this worldwideness to start seeing not what just God is doing with me or with us, but to look at how he is doing this. He is bringing about these results. It's bearing fruit and increasing throughout the world wherever it goes. So on the one hand, there's that aspect of the thoroughness. But on the other hand, this idea of thoroughness thoroughness includes another aspect, and it's this, that that comes from hearing and understanding. That's what he says in verse 6. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. As you have heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now it's a subtle statement, but it is a crucial statement concept in this letter you heard it in the call to worship faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of what who the word of who christ right faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of christ notice the connection my friends there is no gospel proclamation by actions alone There is no gospel proclamation by actions alone. Rather, it's hearing and it is understanding the grace of God and truth. And so throughout this letter, that is a crucial aspect of this letter. Follow right here, just in verses 1 through 8, count how often he uses the word hear, hearing, and, 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 and taught. And you will realize it's four or five times just in eight verses. Oh, this must be a center point of this whole letter. Yes, it is. But all the way through this letter, hearing, learning, being taught, receiving, runs all over this letter. Chapter 1, verse 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 23. Over in the centerpiece, chapter 2, verse 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you have been Oh, there it is again. It just runs throughout this letter. But so notice then that the hearing, learning, and being taught goes along with the word of truth. It goes along with what is proclaimed, the gospel, the mystery that is heard and understood. That too runs throughout this letter. Chapter 1, verse 5, verse 6, verse 9 all of 25 through 29, chapter 2, chapter 3. It just keeps coming up over and over again, but you cannot miss it. 
For example, when you look at and listen to chapter 1, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Why am I bringing all that up? Because it's here, number one. But, you know, there's an old folkish story that floats around out there. It comes up every so often. It's something that St. Francis of Assisi was supposed to have said. But we have no evidence that he ever said it. But it really sounds cool, and people like to use it all the time. And it has nothing to do with the Bible. Preach the gospel. And when necessary, use words. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, it comes up a lot. My friends, number one, Francis, we don't have any proof that Francis ever wrote that or ever said it. Number two, it ain't Bible. Colossians should put that lie down. It ain't Bible. Now, our actions have a lot to do with gospel proclamation. But it's never preach the gospel, use actions, you know, use words when you need to. That's baloney. And so this is huge to see the centerpiece of the proclaimed, read, taught, described, preached word and the value of that in taking Christians and making sure they are not pygmy Christians, but mature Christians. And even coming to faith in Christ. And so Paul ends this first part of our letter then landing on the prototype. Here's our fourth point, landing on the prototype. The one through whom they heard. And the one by whom they came to understand the grace of God in truth. And notice it's in verse 7 and 8. And so the prototype, the example, the exemplar is none other than Epaphras, their own minister. Now my friends, I am excited about these verses. That's encouraging. In Paul's day, there were lots of people that were professional speakers that would be on the circuit, and they would come into town, and they would be the great orators and rhetoricians, and people would be enamored by them because they were such great golden-tongued speakers. Nobody knew anything about them. Nobody knew how they raised their family, if they even had a family. Nobody knew anything about their background, but when they came to town, they looked good. But notice Paul doesn't say, be, you know, this is how it happened. It's these golden-tongued rhetoricians and orators. He says, no, it was your minister. I appreciate that. Because you see, we live in a day where, and it's been this way for about two centuries for sure. I can count you back to the tent revivals in the 1830s. We've been having this problem. We put more credibility in conference speakers, and I love conferences, and I hope the OKCRT were able to get that going and keep that going this year. I love conferences, but we often put that on conference speakers. And then, now we're in the instant media age, the social media age, we put more emphasis on podcasts, YouTube videoers, and such. In fact, I even wrote an article about this not long ago. The address for that, if you want to find it, is down at the bottom of the notes there in the questions. We become, we we just are enamored with the instant rock stars whom you know nothing about. 
You go to them, we go to them to find out how to raise our kids, and we have no idea if their kids are even healthy. We run to them to find out how to be married men and women, and we have no idea if he's actually abusive off screen. We run to them to find out how to be, you know, they're going to be our life coach, and you don't know deadly about them. And people who do that don't want often to gain much from their local elders and deacons and Bible teachers and pastors. That's the world we live in. It's just the reality. I'm not mad at anybody. And so I appreciate Paul was in a similar context. And Paul puts out there in verse 7 and 8, here's the prototype. Your own minister. He did good. In fact, notice what Paul says. He's a faithful minister on your behalf. He came and gossiped the gospel. He gabbed the good news to them. And so the seed was planted, and the seed was watered. It was nurtured, and voila! It is now bearing fruit and increasing. In fact, Epaphras, Paul says of Epaphras, what I don't see him saying of anyone else. When you get to chapter 4 and verse 12, he will designate and highlight Epaphras as the praying minister. This is what he says in chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you. Epaphras, who lives in the neighborhood with you, so you know if he's mowed his yard this week or not. Epaphras, who is one of you. You see him over at Crest or at Homeland when you're out shopping for groceries. Epaphras, who is right there with you, whom you can smell and touch, and you can bump into. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Well, that sounds like Paul. What does he pray for? That you may be, you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul sets Epaphras up as the exemplar, the prototype. Oh, may Epaphras' tribe increase in God's church from now until the day of eternity. But Paul is setting up Epaphras before them as a prototype for another reason. They heard and understood the grace of God and truth through a real flesh and blood human speaking to them. His name was Epaphras. And so Epaphras came and he gave them Jesus Christ through the word of truth, through the gospel, as it says back in verse 5 here. My friends, that is normally almost always how God's world rescue operation spreads. It spreads by people telling people who Jesus is and what he has done, is doing, and will do for his people. It normally almost always comes primarily through Christians continuing uh, speaking and talking to those who are not Christians. But on the other aspect of this, God's will rescue operation also continues to grow and spread as Christians continue to become fruitful and increase by being encouraged by fellow believers, believers encouraging and growing with believers in the gospel. Real, live, flesh and blood humans. 
Epaphras is that prototype, that exemplar. That was God's plan all along. It's still God's plan, no matter how much artificial intelligence and social media take over everything. That's not what God's primary plan is. It's for us to actually be in there with people. Does that make sense? Epaphras is the exemplar there. Now Paul will have more to say about some of these things as we dive deeper, as he dives deeper in verses 9 through 14, but we'll get there next week. As we end, four quick things. Applications are all over these verses, but just four I want to make sure you take home. Number one, gospel praying is specifically thankful for others. Gospel praying is specifically thankful for others. Faith, love, hope. Take time to give thanks for specific things, especially in the grid, if you will, of the trivium of faith, love, and hope. For people in your family, for your church, and so forth. Gospel prayers are also global prayers. Looking at what God is doing here and looking at what God is doing out there. Bearing fruit and increasing. Thirdly, gospel hearers and gospel understanders are blossoming in faith and love and hope. They're bearing fruit and increasing in faith and love and hope. And that should always be our desire. It should always be our direction. That should always be our aim because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, is doing, will do for us. Lastly, gospel hearers and understanders want to be part of others coming to hear and understand the good news, the gospel, the word of truth. Gospel hearers and understanders want to be part of others hearing and understanding. And all of this is part of putting aside the pygmy Jesuses with all the pygmyism in Christianity and to grow in maturity. So dear friends, therefore as you receive Christ Jesus Lord, so walk in him, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now, this moment, at the end of hearing your word proclaimed and described and taught, maybe we've been warned, maybe we've been taught, but oh, may we become mature. Mature in Christ Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to do that. Forgive us for being a thankless people at times. And forgive us, Lord, for not being involved at times when we had the opportunities of telling others about you. Help us rouse our hearts and our spirits toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen.